Good morning. Now I start this morning with a famous verse in the New Testament. This is kind of a key verse to understanding what Christian faith is all about. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that verse asserts that when a person trusts in Jesus Christ alone as Savior, he or she becomes a new person. In fact, it uses the words new creation, so it's an action that's equivalent to the original creation. When God spoke his creative word and the creation came into being, in the same way God speaks and a new person comes into being, a person who is a part of the new creation that God is in the process of making. In other words, the Christian message changes people's lives. What he or she was before conversion to Christ is no longer relevant, and a person is new with new capabilities and new directions in life. And that's not only the clear teaching of the New Testament, it's also something that we regularly hear. In fact, we'll hear it this morning at the end of the service as a woman is baptized. And when a person takes the new covenant sign, they're saying, I was this kind of person, and then I came to trust in Christ, and here is what God is doing in my life. So Christ changes things in people's lives. This morning, what I want to ask is the question, what kind of changes do we expect in the life of a person who comes to trust in Christ? The passage that was just read to us a minute ago has a basic principle that is as basic and as important as the one in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. In fact, it's so important that he states it three times, and in between the three times that he states it, he uses an illustration to make clear exactly what he means. So if you look again at the passage, he says in verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And then... He uses an illustration. The illustration is circumcision in verses 18 and 19. Then in verse 20, he restates the principle. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And and in case he's not clear, he uses another illustration. And that illustration is slavery. And he uses that in verses 21 through 23. And then in verse 24, he states the principle one more time so that we won't miss it. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition Each was called, there let him remain with God. And the principle is clear. It's simply that uh, you should live in a situation in which you were when God called you to himself. You should remain in the condition, the life situation in which you were when you first became a Christian. Now, I want to note at the outset that you can think of becoming a Christian from two sides. And the side we usually think of it from is the human side. We think of it as our faith in Christ. I come to trust in Christ, and that's the point that I look back to as when I became a Christian. The Bible acknowledges that, but it also looks at it from another side, the divine side, and that is called the call And that's what's used in this passage as many times in the New Testament. That refers to the divine initiative, God moving towards us and doing something inside of us to effectively call us to himself. 
Though it's common to focus on the human side today, it's more common in the Bible to focus on the divine side. But either way, what Paul is saying is, when that happened to you, you should remain in the condition or in the life situation in which you were when God initially called you. Now, a number of years ago, this was maybe 25 years ago, and the illustration will date it itself, there was a young couple who came to the church. They had two or three small children, and they, for about a three- or four-month period, not only came to services, but they got involved in small groups, and uh, they were a very bright, interested uh, young couple. One Sunday, at the end of the three or four months, the young man pulled me aside after the services, and he let me know that they would not be attending anymore. And I wanted to know why, and here's what he told me. A couple of years before that, in order to make more money for the family, they had um, purchased pornographic videos that they then were allowed within a specific video store. So that dates the, dates the illustration back to when there were video stores you'd go to get videos. And there was a room in that store. You had to be 18 to go in there. And they owned all of the videos in that room. And so they were making money from this. And they both had come to the conclusion, having been here in these services and in various groups and things, that if they became Christians, they would have to stop renting these pornographic videos. And they weren't prepared to do that, and so they thought it best to stop attending the church. Now, this morning I want to ask, is that true? After all, doesn't Paul say each one should remain in the condition in which he was when he was called by God to become a Christian? Is that the kind of change inside of a person that would need to be made? Now, what should I have said to him at that point? After all, isn't that the life condition that he and his wife are in? So what does Paul mean by this three times repeated principle that says that you should remain in the condition that you were in when God called you to himself? Well, the illustrations in the passage are meant to underline and make clear what exactly he means when he gives this basic principle about Christian faith. The first illustration is about circumcision. Now, as a Bible teacher, I've become very aware that this is something that's found a lot in the Bible. And when people are somewhat new to coming to a church or hearing the Bible taught, they they sometimes might feel a little put off by, like, why are you people always talking about circumcision? I mean, it's not something that normal people talk about very often. Today, circumcision is mostly viewed as a medical procedure that has some supposed benefits that some people accept and other people don't. But what you need to know is in the ancient world, that wasn't that way at all. It had no medical therapeutic reason. It was purely a cultural, ethnic, religious marker. So in the ancient world, you would be divided, at least by the founders of the Christian movement, into two categories. You were either Jewish or you were Gentile. If you were Jewish and you were a male, you had been circumcised as an infant child to bring you into the covenant that God made with the people under the, in the Old Testament. And um, if you were a Gentile, you had not been circumcised. But that was not the only indication. I mean, that, that was the outward mark that obviously not everyone was even aware of, but that represented a whole series of cultural, ethnic identity 
that was rooted deeply inside a person. You need to understand, the Christian movement started out of the Jewish people. Jesus was a full-blooded Jewish man. He even said during his ministry, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was so important that towards the end of his ministry, a Gentile woman from Syrophoenicia, today modern Syria, came to him and asked him to heal her. And he said, it is not right for me to take the children's bread, meaning his teaching that was intended for the Jewish people, it's not right for me to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, referring to Gentiles. And that strikes us as incredibly harsh, but Jesus knew that his initial purpose was to reach the Jewish people. Now, the woman asked him again, and because of her faith, he healed her at that point. It wasn't because the Christian message had no relevance to those outside of the Jewish community. It's because that was the necessary starting point. So what happened in the early church was there came pretty quickly to be a controversy over how were they going to receive non-Jewish people into the church once the church has started, because everyone who started initially was Jewish. And that is an important aspect of the New Testament, but what was decided was that Jews and Gentiles would be accepted in the church on one basis, the same basis for both, faith in Christ. In other words, the Gentiles did not have to become Jews, either by taking the covenant sign or by accepting the law and living according to its principles. That did not have to happen in order for them to be a part of the covenant people of God. That was true in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. You had to identify with the Jewish nation to be part of the people of God. But in the unfolding of God's purposes, once Jesus had come and established the New Covenant, everyone is accepted on the same basis, Jew or Gentile, that is, faith in Christ. And on that basis, Paul establishes this rule. You do not have to change your cultural, ethnic identity when you become a Christian. Christian faith is above culture. It is supranational. That is made up of all nationalities. It's made up of all races. Christianity does not, by its nature, true Christian faith does not produce a uniform culture. It is made up of all cultures. And whatever culture, and by that I mean ethnic background, race, distinctive languages, ways of thinking, and so forth, that you are in when you become a Christian, Christian faith does not automatically change those things. So if you are white, Indian, Italian, Malaysian, Northern European, African, whatever your ethnic background is and all that that means, you remain in that condition after you come to faith in Christ. Now, obviously, that's apparent outwardly. You don't change genders or races. You can't do that. But Paul's not talking about simply the outward trappings of that in a person's physical appearance. He's talking about what is much deeper than that, and that is he's talking about culture that is deeply rooted in a person's soul. Now, culture is something that we each develop distinctively because it depends on our background and what we are trained and what we are taught. But we're also thinking about more than just culture. Think of temperament. That is, I have certain experiences as a child, and you had different experiences as a child. Those experiences, based on the family in which we were born, over which we had no choice, develops within us ways of thinking. We 
make our own mistakes in life as we move forward, and we have to deal with those things. People also in our background do things that harm us, either intentionally or unintentionally, including parents, grandparents, teachers, all of those people. And we have to deal with the consequences of what was done to us as well as the things that we did. And that develops us to be unique individual people. And Paul's point here is the person that you were when God called you to himself effectively is the person that God wants to use. Nothing about that has to change in terms of culture, ethnicity, temperament in order for you to serve God effectively. You know, one unique teaching of the New Testament is that Jews and Gentiles were to be in one church together. You see, once once the gospel message went out of Judea, where the Jewish temple was, where Jesus died, once it went into the Roman world, which was very large. Automatically, when churches were started, though most of them started out of a synagogue with a a core group of Jewish people, most of them, Gentiles joined and soon overwhelmed the number of Jewish people within it. But the distinctive teaching of the New Testament is there's to be one church in which they stay together. The Jewish people don't go and form their own church and the Gentiles form their own church. Now, this is very hard to maintain, I've found, though it is meant to be the basic ethic of the church. That's the view that we're to take. It's hard to maintain uh, because different cultures and ethnicities are so different, they find it hard at times to be together. For example, Laura and I lived in Dallas uh, for a number of years when we were young, and we went to a small church. I remember that a group of Indians, and I mean from the country of India, Uh, who were mostly in the medical profession, began to come to our church services. They were Christians. They were believers in Christ. And and I remember at one time, there was quite a language difference, you know, for us. We were in a meeting, and in this particular church, there was a meeting every week where um, different men, anyone who felt so moved, could stand up and do some teaching or something. And this uh, Indian man stood up, and he taught something. It was based on a passage in the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, I think it is, or 12. And he, and he said, based on this verse that says that Christians, Christians, we come to worship God. We're not coming to the old system. We're not coming to a place, a temple. We're not coming to a priesthood. We're not coming to an altar of sacrifice. Now we are coming to the heavenly Jerusalem, into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And he uses this phrase, we come to the spirits of just men made perfect. And and this Indian man didn't understand that the word just there means righteous. We come to the spirits of righteous people, people who have been cleansed by faith, who now are in the presence of God and they're made perfect, But he took it to mean simple, merely. So he gave a whole message based on we come to mere people who have been made righteous. And the problem is that's not at all what the passage means. So someone took him aside afterwards and they explained to him the meaning of the word just in that passage. And, um, well, what happened shortly after that, and I don't think because of that event, because this was all done, you know, very openly, but but the, the Indians decided they needed to have their own fellowship. And so they went and they began to meet separately. Now, it's hard for me to say anything against that because I do understand, having been in different places in the world, how difficult it is based on language and culture and all of those things for people to remain in one fellowship. 
After all, we were expecting them to come with their culture and adapt to our culture. We were all going to speak English, and we weren't going to begin to speak whatever their languages were. However, we do have to acknowledge, from the New Testament perspective, the church is, and local churches are meant to be made up, of a multiplicity of gender, of race, of ethnic background. Those things are all erased in Christ. When you come to Christ, his first point is, nothing compels you to give up your cultural identity. You you do not have to become something different than what you are. And then he gives the the principle again, verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now, let's move on to the second illustration because it makes it a little bit clearer. He now moves to the illustration of slavery. Now, slavery in Corinth, it would be important to understand, probably slaves made up two-thirds of the population. At least two-thirds of the population were either slaves or former slaves. In the Roman Empire, people could be freed from slavery. They could either save their money very carefully and purchase their freedom at a point in time, or there were um, sort of unwritten practices in parts of the Roman Empire in which a slave owner was obligated after a certain period of service, maybe 20 or 30 years, to offer a person their freedom. So there were a lot of former slaves, and there were a lot of present slaves. Well, obviously, if two-thirds of the population are that, within the church, there would be a number of people in that category. And what it is talking about primarily is what we would think of as social class. Slaves were at the bottom of the social class. They had no power, uh, or at least very little power. Now, what's interesting in the passage is he says, if you were called while you were a slave, don't be concerned about it. And you might say, what do you mean? Don't be concerned about it. I mean, obviously, I'm concerned about it. He makes that clear in a parenthesis. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. That's important because it tells us that this rule, this principle, is not an ironclad rule that says whatever you were doing when you became a Christian, you have to stay there. If you worked on the line and you wanted to be the president of the company, you can't do that because when you became a Christian, it doesn't mean anything like that at all. People are free to move within social class. It's harder to change ethnicity, and we're not required to. But you're free to to change. You can get education if you don't have education. You can marry if you're not married, so forth. Those things can change. But what he means is, probably when he says, do not be concerned about it, most slaves had no power over the position they were in. In which case he was saying, don't think that freedom is a requirement of being able to serve God. Now, in America, social class is a complex mass of things like education, speech, um, position in society, wealth, and dress. At least that's the old way of thinking about it. All of those things. And usually wealth is at the bottom of the list in the old way of viewing social class. In very contemporary times, I think we have to acknowledge it's changing Social class has a lot to do today with how much money you have and how much you're on social media. So we have a lot of people like the Kardashians, you know, have no purpose or value in life that anyone can discern except that they're on social media a lot. (laughs) Paul's point is you don't have to change your social status when you become a Christian. You can please God 
by being faithful to him within your unique life, with your own temperament, from your own background, with, with what you are. If you are the president of the company or a worker on the line, you can serve God effectively in either case. It makes no difference to God. It may make difference to other people. They may have a way of judging people, but to God it makes no difference. Qualification, you can change it. If you want to, you can change it, but you don't have to change it in order to live as a Christian. You don't have to change your social position. But conversion to Christ requires no change of social position. Now, let me use it. This is a little embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about my background. I am a fourth-generation college graduate in which, as a fourth-generation college graduate, most of the men in my background, extended family, have had advanced degrees. There are a number of doctors. My great-grandfather was a famous attorney and, and things like that. Um, I grew up in a family. You're going to use this against me, I know. But I grew up in a family in which, when I was young, until I got in high school, I could make my own decisions on this, I was not allowed to wear jeans. And the reason I couldn't wear blue jeans is my mother thought blue jeans were for working people. Well, I want to be clear on that. Everyone in my family worked. Like, we weren't from the kind of background where we had so much money, nobody had to work. That was not the case. Everybody had to work. But I mean, my mother had this idea that people who wore jeans were in the working class, like common human clay, you know, and that she didn't want me to dress that way. I grew up listening to classical music. In fact, I remember I missed the whole Beatles my mother, would, I literally, my mother would take me to concerts in Ann Arbor, you know, all this stuff. And I have a cousin who's my age. He showed up like in 1968, 69. He had these magazines about the Beatles. And I remember looking at the Beatles. What are the Beatles? I don't even know what they are. <laughs> I, I, my grandparents, um, Llewellyn, they, they had servants during the Depression. Now, nothing about my Christian faith requires that I pretend I'm from a different background than I'm from. That was the background that God gave to me. I've shared some things that you might find interesting. I'm not going to share all the things that you know, weren't so pleasant as well, but the fact is nothing requires me to pretend that I'm from a different background, from a different concept of social class. I want you to know that even I can feel uncomfortable in social class. A few years ago, uh, my niece got married. My sister, my older sister, is a, don't know how to describe this, a high church Episcopalian. So like a church where everything is formal. You know, you look at the liturgy to see when you're allowed to cough kind of thing, you know. <laughs> if you have to cough, cough here, whatever. <laughs> so I went into this service, and I'd been asked to pray. And as the time approached for me to pray, I felt nervous. I don't usually feel nervous, but I perceived because my wife's husband is a rather well-known full professor at a well-known university that every single person in the room was a professor at the university and that I was out of place. And so I got up and I prayed. And afterwards, I'll never forget, this man came up to me and he said to me, I shall be thinking about your prayer for many days. And I thought, I think that means he liked it. I'm not sure, you know, but 
you know, home run. A little, <laughs> little Tommy made it. But, you know, the gospel compels me to do two things. It compels me to accept myself with my background and not pretend I'm something different than I am and I didn't grow up or I grew up in a different family than I did. And the second thing it compels me to do is understand and accept as deeply as I can that it means nothing to God. God makes no distinction between me and a person who never had someone in their background who went to college. That matters not to God at all. God honored me by calling me to himself in the social condition I found myself. And God honors other people by bringing them to himself. And he puts us together in one church. And social condition makes no difference to the way we relate. It makes a great deal of difference in the way that we think. But I'm required to accept that before God, that doesn't matter at all. I'm not any worse off because I'm that background. That background, And I'm not any better off because of that. That's the basic idea that he used here. When it comes to culture and social class, his principle is that he wanted people to understand is that you remain in the condition in which you were found. Now, it doesn't mean you have to remain there, but what it means is you don't have to change who you are in order to effectively serve God. You don't have to become something that you're not in order to effectively serve God. The Corinthians were expected to make an application. You need to understand that in its context. It's interesting he doesn't refer to this in this paragraph, but this basic principle obviously is an application of what he's been talking about marriage. The, the Corinthians had questions as new Christians. They, they thought, are married people somehow contaminated by engaging in normal marital relations that's not a question we have today, but it was a question they had. And, and he says, not at all. If you're married, you relate to one another as married people are meant to relate to one another. They had a question. If I'm married, would it be better to be single? He says, no, if you're married, it's better to live as a married person. If God calls you to be single and he enables you to do that, you don't have to get married They had questions like in the previous, uh, immediately preceding words, if I'm a Christian, I've become a Christian, and my spouse is not a Christian, am I contaminated by living with an unholy person who does not belong to God? He answers it clearly, not at all. Even though it's a principle of life that dirt contaminates and cleanliness doesn't, and it's a principle of the Old Testament that sin contaminates. Holiness doesn't spread itself. If a priest touched a dead body, the priest became unclean. He didn't make the dead body clean. If you clean your house and your kids come in and track, out, track dirt through the house, your cleanliness that you did doesn't automatically cover up the dirt. It gets dirty, right? Sin contaminates, but this says that principle isn't true under the gospel. When Jesus touched a dead body, he didn't become unclean. He made the dead body alive. When he touched a sinner, he wasn't contaminated by the sin. He took the sinner's sin into himself and took it to the cross. They were expected to make certain applications themselves about marriage, but he makes applications that relate to things other than marriage, culture and ethnicity and so forth. So let's make some application from this, this basic idea. You should remain in the condition in which you were found when the Lord called you to himself. And and by the condition, it means the cultural, ethnic heritage that you had, the gender that you are, 
The ways that you were taught to think and live, generally speaking, you should remain in that in order to serve God effectively. Well, one thing to note is that the Bible does compel changes, and even this passage tells us that. If you look at verse 19, it's a very important statement about circumcision. He closes his little illustration of circumcision by saying, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, first you have to think, how could the Apostle Paul have said that? I mean, think of his background. He was 100% Jewish. He knew his tribal background. He, he knew that he was a Pharisee raised by parents who were strictly observant Jews. He had been trained under the most famous rabbi of the first century, Gamaliel, in Jerusalem. He regarded his Jewishness as his identity marker that gave him benefits before God. And when he came to faith in Christ, not immediately, I'm sure, but he began to realize all that went away. All that cultural Social superiority that he felt meant nothing to God. And he was able to write, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. God calls people from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. He calls them to himself, and he doesn't give regard to their cultural, ethnic heritage. It doesn't matter to him. He uses it, but it doesn't matter to him in terms of their acceptance with him. But, he says, what matters is keeping the commandments of God. So let's go back to my opening illustration. Here's this young couple. They have purchased all these pornographic videos, and they are the ones who are gaining money when they are rented out at this video store. I don't actually remember how I responded to them at that time. I know how I would like to have responded, and and what I would say to them is this. I hope you understand that you do not have to do that in order to become a Christian. After all, if the message were clean up your life and then you can trust in Christ, no one would ever get there. Because your problem outwardly might be pornography, but let me tell you, in the long run, that's a relatively small problem compared to the sin inside of your heart. And the fact is, when you trust in Christ, if you trust genuinely in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will begin to work inside of you. And by three means... The Holy Spirit and his internal promptings, the teaching of the Bible as you expose yourself to it, and the people of God as you fellowship with them. In those three ways, he's going to begin to chip away and work at your life. And I would have said to them, I will guarantee that is one of the first things that he's going to begin to change. Yes, you will be compelled to give up your pornography. But I hope you don't think you've got to do that in order to become a Christian. Because after all, none of us could clean up our lives enough to get there. We don't even possess the Holy Spirit. How could we do it? You have to have Christ and the Holy Spirit to do that. And the point is that those changes, the big things that we think of initially, aren't really the hard ones. They're not the lasting ones. When I came to faith in Christ, I had quite a wicked tongue. I could swear with the best of them. And that was one thing I became aware really quickly I needed to change. And, and so I changed that, not, not perfectly, but I mean, not, I really stopped talking the way I did at that time. And, and, and the fact is, now I look back after 40 years and I realize there were all kinds of other things below the waterline that God wanted to deal with. 
And repentance is the characteristic of the Christian life throughout the Christian life. It's not just what happens at the beginning when you cut off a few of the dead branches. That's what goes on throughout the life. It's not just the obvious forms that are outward that do need to be changed. There's all kinds of things in the way that we think and the way we relate to people and the way we speak to people that God wants to gently but firmly be working on in our lives. And he uses his spirit and he uses the scriptures and he uses the people of God to do that. But the other thing I want to note is this passage teaches that a Christian does not have to be in the right situation, whatever you think that is, does not have to be in the right situation in order to serve God effectively. You do, you know, it's not saying whatever kind of lifestyle you lived, stay there. Because, no, if you're not keeping the commandments of God, if you're living an immoral lifestyle, if you're a thief, those things need to change. But it's talking about what kind of person you are, whether you're from a certain background or a different background, what kind of education you have, what kind of temperament you have, all of that, you can serve God effectively in the situation you're in. I mean, so many people think, I know this, I remember when I was in school and I thought, if only I could graduate, then I could really serve God. Well, that's not true. God calls you to serve him in whatever your situation is at that point. Yes, when you graduate, one thing you'll find is that some of your responsibilities have dropped off, and so you have more of an opportunity to serve God. Then you'll find that other responsibilities automatically take their place. And and you have other things that you have to struggle with. Unmarried people sometimes think, if only I could get married, it would solve all my problems. I'd really be able to live for God if I could get married. Well, the fact is, it is going to solve some of your problems when you get married. And it's going to bring other ones. That's the nature of life. What is important is not the state in which you find yourself, but how you live for God in that situation. What you do with it. You will find as you go through life that God gives you different responsibilities. And your responsibilities will be different than other people. You may have a special needs child. Other people don't have to deal with that. You may have a job that is particularly demanding. Other people don't have to deal with that. All of these things are what we need to see ourselves in a life situation and say, God, how can I serve you as the person that I am not as the person I wish I were. And that's what God calls us to do this morning. Let's pray. Again, our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you gave to us, through your Son, the Lord Jesus, a message that does not require that we become something that we, at root level, something different than we are. Now, it does change us deeply, in fact, to the core of our being, and yet... Nothing will ever change the parents that we had, the ethnic background that we were given. Nothing will change the temperament that we developed as we moved through life and we responded to our own good and bad choices and other people's good or bad choices against us. Nothing will change that, basically, but you call us to be the people you want us to be and to use us in that situation. We entrust this to you. We pray that you will help us to relate to one another in that way. We pray especially that you would help us to accept each other as Christ has accepted us to the glory of God. That you you would continue to make peace reign among your people.
this in Jesus' name.